Usually I record that. Uh, do um, is my level okay? Oh, I should. <laughs> Thanks for your help. Sure. <laughs> Can you say uh, pizza, pineapple, Penelope? Lots of P words, please. Uh, pizza, pineapple, Penelope, putrid, Pimlico, <laughs> perambulate. <laughs> my God. <laughs> Prudent. Well, you went to a good school. <laughs> oh that no. That is impressive. <laughs> Wait, where did you actually go? Pork chop. I went to Ithaca College. That's that's New York. It's fine. You go- <laughs> it's pretty- What's it ranked in New York? 25th? Or- I'm not sure. It's a private school. Oh. They always, every year, Variety does top film schools in the country. And it always comes in like number 16. And they're always like, yay. But I'm like, it's number 16. You know? <laughs> There's no medals for that. Yeah, it's something. At least you're not like Fordham in New York City. Like, you know, you have to compete with Columbia and NYU. Yeah. Like, yeah. You'll but- never be first. <laughs> But it was very, very expensive um, for coming in at number 16. Yeah. (laughs) And you studied film. Okay. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're ready to go? Yep. Okay. Oh, hi. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions and the lucky few that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you're ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, writer and producer, Chris Regan. Originally from New York City, Chris has worked on some of the most well-known TV shows and movies you have for sure seen, not the least of which are Ted 2, Family Guy, and The Daily Show. Chris also wrote a book with Captain James T. Kirk. You nerds, look that up. Most insanely impressive, Chris marks our first guest winner of both a Peabody and an Emmy Award, and I should clarify, he has more than one of each of those. If we have any Family Guy fans in the audience, you can thank Chris for dragging most of the things I love, like sugar theater, NPR, and Jews. I better know Chris from the small world of entertainment and getting to hang out with his dog, Cricket, who's here, who I can't deal with. She's so cute. Uh, I want that on record that I like her more than I like him. That said, Chris, what got you into writing? Did you know you were responsible for some of my favorite lines in television that offended my nerd theater self, not the least of which was describing Hummer drivers as people who when the car is gone, will, quote, misdriving a military vehicle 45 miles an hour through a school zone to get crest white strips. What a read. Chris, talk to us. (laughs) Tell us things. Hi, Kate. Uh, uh, Thank you for having me on. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I kind of fell into writing a little by accident. Um, I went to film school, although I I went there initially to be be a journalist. Then I wound up in film. Um, Right before senior year, uh, the end of senior year, I realized I didn't like making films. So uh, I just got to New York and started doing comedy, mostly as a performer, and then being as a stand-up. And um, uh, the thing with stand-up was I would always audition for festivals and things like that. And uh, I would always get, hey, you know, you're a great writer. <laughs> and which is... What a backhanded compliment. Yeah, which for the, for the uninitiated is get <laughs> off the stage. And, give. and the thing is, I was never a guy who would bomb badly. I would always... You know, get some warm smiles. And I, I I used to play a place called Triple Inn on West 54th Street, which was a hardcore Irish-American Yankees bar. And we would do stand-up there on Saturday nights. And I think I had the distinct distinction of the only guy who was never heckled. Um, <laughs> so I knew how to hold my own. But whenever I perform in a real club, I would just get polite applause and polite laughs. And one time I auditioned for the Aspen Comedy Festival and did okay. Didn't do great. 
And the next day, God bless them, the Aspen people, uh, it was an HBO comedy fair they used to do in Aspen every year. They had me call into a conference call. And they were like, look, we really like you. You know, we like you personally. We like your material. You need to work on a persona. <laughs> and I was like, and all, all my stuff was just topical stuff and kind of silly things about movies. And I was kind of like, well, I, should, I, should I wear a hat? What should I do? And, <laughs> but they were saying, really try to carve out a persona for you. Don't just be a joke writer. Be more confessional. Talk about your family, et cetera, et cetera. And then a year went by, and I was still performing around alternative spaces in New York. I wasn't, I wasn't a road guy. And um, then they called me again when the audition time came around. And they said, so did you work on that stuff that we talked to you about? And I just said, you know, I haven't. <laughs> and then they said, do you want to audition again still? And I just said... No. I didn't buy a hat. I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. So I decided then and there that I really should concentrate on being a writer as opposed to an actor, performer, all that stuff. Like I booked a couple of TV commercials and things like that, but uh, it was never enough to... I mean, it was enough for me to pay off my school loans while I worked another job because I, I worked in advertising. Um, but then I just started a good... Fr- a guy named Alex Sulkin, who's now my boss, <laughs> uh, he was uh, a PA at SNL, and he saw me do stand-up one time, and he gave me the fax number when Colin Quinn was doing Weekend Update. And I didn't know Alec that well, and I had good friends who were faxing jokes to Colin Quinn who wouldn't give me the number. And uh, Alec gave me the number. I started faxing. Colin began to buy jokes for me. I'd, I'd never met him. And, you know, Colin would pay 100 bucks a pop. This is 1998 out of his own pocket. Very generous. And then John Stewart took over at The Daily Show in 99. And I, he didn't get, get on terribly well with the original with the Craig Kilborn writing crew. And he asked Colin if he knew of anybody good. And Colin gave him my name. Again, I'd never met Colin other than we had traded uh, answering machine messages. And I had a couple of other people who knew John put in a good word for me. And I submitted about 30 set-up punchline jokes, and I highlighted the ones that Colin had bought, and I, I was John's first hire. Holy and, shit. And yeah, and th- but, but then that was also a, you're not going to be an actor on SNL. You're not going to be in movies. You know, it, it's time to be a writer. Poor me. But, um, but, but no, it, it's, uh, th- that's kind of how... I, I always like flirted with the idea, like, oh, I, I think, you know, I could be a writer too. You know, I, I could write my own material, all, all my, my own movies that I was going to star in. But, you know, that, that wasn't in the cards. Well, I think, I mean, you're being a little hard on yourself. He's Irish, folks. Get over it. Um, <laughs> but I, you're being a bit hard on yourself. There is a sadness to surrendering the dream of being in front of the camera, if that's really what you wanted to do. Yeah, but there, there also comes a time when you really need to not do that. <laughs> but because, really, I remember the original crew, when I hopped on the, the Daily Show, a lot of those writers were also stand-up comics. And you could see it was kind of eating them alive that they weren't the guy on camera. Oh. And occasionally I, as someone who, I know how to deliver a joke, I would hear John, that amateur, uh, deliver <laughs> a joke in the manner that I wouldn't have done it. And it would be kind of like, why you ought to... And I think... And it took a couple of years for me to have that discussion with the Aspen people because I was still doing stand-up while I was on uh, on the on the Daily Show. Oh wow! Um, but yeah, it took me a couple of years to realize, uh, wouldn't it be easier to just write and be good at that? And mm-hmm. 
stop hollowing yourself out you know, about mm, what yeah. isn't happening. Sure. And as, as the years have gone by, I've been able to act in things. I do some voices on Family Guy, and I was... Uh, you were in Ted 2? I was very briefly in Ted 2. I have a line in Ted 2. You sure do. Uh, I was on... This sh- I played Monty Hall on this Showtime series called I'm Dying Up Here. Oh, my friend, uh, former guest of the podcast, Earl Skakel, was also in that show. That's a really great show. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it was great. And I mean, I, I've been on, I was on Parks and Recreation. The, um, what were you? I didn't know that. I love that show. It, it was in under five. I played, I'll remember. I played a pundit named Dylan Peaver in the episode Campaign Shakeup. Campaign Jacob, Campaign Jacob. I have to, I'm going to think of this. Also starred Catherine Hahn and Paul Rudd. We had no scenes together. But you but. were in the same episode as they were. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I, so you've had doors open for you in that arena. I, I act just enough. Sure. And oftentimes it's, I get the sense that the real actor might have hurt himself. You know, because, <laughs> because I, particularly with the Parks and Rec thing, Dan Gore who created Brooklyn Nine Nine, and he worked. He and I worked together at the Daily Show from '99 to 2001 or so. Um, he'd had a pilot he was working on, and he asked me to help out to do punch up uh, on the Radford lot. And I was there, and you know, it was a big long night, and I was you know glad to help and pitch some stuff that show didn't go. But he still worked on Parks. And one Sunday, I got a call from him. He's like, "Hey, uh, could you help me out with, with with my new episode tomorrow? I'm directing it." So I was like, "Oh, okay, punch up. That's fine." And they'd say, okay, a wardrobe will call you in like an hour. And then he hung up like, what? I would have shit my pants. And been like, that means I'm going to be on TV. And they emailed me the script. And it was under five. It's right in the cold open. So I knew it wouldn't be cut. Yeah. yeah. And But I think Dave Miner, who is Dan's manager, and I think he's one of the EPs of um, Parks. He is. He had said to me that if I weren't able to make it, he was going to do it. So I, I think they weren't necessarily looking for a Juilliard crowd. Wow. wow. <laughs> but but I often play pundits, and in the case of Monty Hall, game show hosts, I think I'm good at people who are acting unnaturally. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm going to be in any kind of uh, do the work, find the character sort of stuff. I think I'm. Sure. I'm usually filmed holding a microphone being somebody who's being filmed while holding a microphone. Sure. Can you, for our non-entertainment audience, can you explain um, why you're just kind of like, ah, it's just an under five? Because I don't think people know what that means. Oh, um, basically under five lines. And uh, I mean, they could be five great lines, but it's a certain designation and a certain pay scale, Mm -hmm. I believe. It is. Whereas when I played Monty Hall, and this was Monty Hall in the 70s, by the way, I don't want the audience to get the idea that I'm in my 90s. Um, <laughs> you look great. <laughs> thank you. But th- that was a guest star. And the, oh, the, shit. Yeah, that's the biggest part I've ever had. Like, like, wow. Like, that was a 12-hour day. That was about seven or eight pages of dialogue. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that, that was my one uh, real performance. And I think I might have been the only guy who auditioned. <laughs> Holy shit. Because <laughs> I had auditioned for my friend Julia Sharp had this show, Making History, and he wanted me to audition for the part of John Hancock. It was a very funny show that went a season on Fox a couple of years ago. And it wound up going to the very gifted Neil Casey as well as it should have. He's very talented. But the casting agency called my managers, who are my writing manager, and said, hey, would he want to play Monty Hall? I'm like, okay. So, and, you know, uh, I'm Dying Up Here is a show about comedy in the 70s. And they have some real life people in it and being played by people like me. And I went there and they were auditioning guys for Wolfman Jack. And for your younger listeners, he was a DJ in the 70s. He's an American graffiti, but a big fat guy with a big beard, a big gravelly voice. And uh, 
And I walked into a, the casting room, and it was just all these big fat guys with beards. I'm like, am I? I'm like, oh, I'm here on Wolfman Jack Day. <laughs> and um, I just auditioned for Monty Hall. There was no callback. They, they just called my managers that afternoon. It's like, can he do it next week? I'm like, okay. And uh, yeah, it was like a nice fitting with vintage clothing. And uh, they built this uh, Let's Make a Deal set, uh, old school from the 1970s. And it was directed by a Scotsman named John Baird, who directed... That Stan Ollie movie a couple of years ago with Steve Coogan. So oh, wow. I think he's good at directing comedy that takes place in different periods. Sure. But, uh, but he was he let me improvise and do all sorts of other stuff. And he was really, really great to work with. And it was a very nice experience. And that wasn't enough for that like heroin shot to make you think, I could do this. Like That's more screen time than most actors see in a lifetime. Oh, no. Because I remember, because in the late 90s, I would actively audition for commercials. And... You know, in New York, at least back in those days, all the commercial casting agencies were in the same neighborhood. They were all around the Flatiron Building. So you could go there, hang out for a couple of uh, hours, audition. Everyone went to a great sandwich place on 6th Avenue, south of 23rd. It closed, but it's open. Sal's? Eisenberg's. You know, Very Catholic name. Yeah. Catholic (laughs) deli. It was just nice kind of community. And then I, you know, I stopped acting and I became a writer. And then we moved out here in 2007, just in time for the writer's strike to hit. So then I thought, I'll audition for commercials again. And auditioning for commercials out here is rough. I mean, mm-hmm. you're driving all over town. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes hours and hours and hours. I mean, ideally with COVID, self-taping is a bit easier. Yeah, it's awesome. But I realized, like, there's a tremendous amount of work here. I'm okay as an actor. I'm better sitting down with a computer mm-hmm. in terms of my creative output to the world. I mean, I think that's such an honest take of your own value added and that if you know that that's a trajectory where you can have success, then you got out of your own way. And the fact that you keep getting thrown roles anyway, like, yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of the best of both worlds. And, you know, I, I hope that doesn't make people angry, but but I have worked very hard to be in the places where roles do get thrown my way. You no, know? you're an I asshole. Mean. No, it's okay. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Yeah, of course. I mean, you fought to be, writing was no easy feat for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty tough. And I didn't get my first my first staff job at The Daily Show. I was 31. You know, I'd, I'd kicked around for a while. Sure. And uh, just doing sketch in New York and stand-up while working my advertising job at a record company during the day, which didn't take up much of my time, which was good because um, I was the alternative writer in the 90s at Sony Music. And, you know, Pearl Jam was the big alternative act. Sure. And they turned on advertising immediately. Like, I would have to write campaigns and stuff. Then Pearl Jam came along and was like, nope, Pearl Jam, the new album. That's what the copy's going to be. And then all these other bands followed suit. Rage Rage Against the Machine, the new album. So all my acts required nothing from me as a writer. So I would, and this is back in the days, the mid-90s, when record companies just spent money like water. They had a ton of money. I had my own office on the 30th floor of 550 Madison Avenue. And I would do very little work. And I had a a sweater or a jacket that I would drape over my chair and I put a cup of coffee there and then I'd scramble down and go to audition for a commercial, disappear for like 90 minutes and come back. And, um, you know, in the era before cell phones, it was easier to just disappear. Yeah. 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 To disappear for a little while. And for all they knew, they were just walking by my office at the wrong time because, Hey, his jacket's here. His His coffee's coffee's there. Yeah. No one leaves both things. (laughs) Yeah. the, the, The computer's on. So I had a bunch of different, you know, ways to do that. And it was, you know, it was a real hustle, but 
um, it was nice to finally have a job where you showed up every day and that was your job and you enjoyed it. Yeah. Daily Show was rough. When I worked there, it was very um, kind of a toxic environment. And uh, uh, I mean, it was a good show, but it was, you know, oftentimes it wasn't a blast working there just because of personalities. But... um, and was it very competitive? I've heard that it's... Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, you know, I think... I've heard of late night shows where it's more competitive in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, they keep a scorecard about what writers get what on, Shut on up. the air. Yeah, yeah. Like, completely ignoring the kind of collaborative nature of things. It's supposed to be writing. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> some people can apply a sports mentality to almost anything. Yeah, that's right. So, you yeah. know, um, those are ideally people you don't wind up working for, but... Like the job I have now is very collaborative and it's really nice and I, it's considered in bad taste to, you know, that was mine. Sure, <laughs> you know? sure. Um, and I found that places like that traditionally, people know who did things and they give you credit for it. And if you have the job, it's because you know what you're doing. Sure. Whereas, particularly at The Daily Show and it was a bunch of stand-up comedians just chomping at the bit and sort of like, was that mine? Was that yours? Was that yours? God, okay, can, you know. that sounds so exhausting. It's like, really I exhausting. Just, yeah, and, and to have to keep up with the Joneses at your job, but also live in LA where you have to keep up with the Joneses. Like I just, then that hamster wheel in both worlds. Yeah. Did you ever have peace? I feel like that'd be a chaos. I mean, it was, you don't realize how hard you're working until you stop working. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I quit The Daily Show after about seven years and, um, I didn't read a newspaper for a while just because cranking that out every day, day in, day in, day out, just really wore you down to a nub. And then you have some time off, you get back into a show, you work 12 hours a day. Okay, I'm, I'm in the zone. And then when there's a hiatus, like, oh, I can't do anything. Yeah. I just, so I'm really glad to be at a show where it takes each episode about 14 months to get on the air. You know? I don't think people understand how intense the, the animation, but also specifically animation that with jokes, it's like, it's not just writing my little pony. It's like, no, you have to remain relevant. Yeah. I mean, we have a very big writing staff. Like we have, our writing staff is a lot bigger than a lot of sitcoms because oh, really, yeah. I mean, cause if you look at a standard 30 minutes sitcom script, there might be, one or two jokes on a page. Mm-hmm. Whereas Family Guy, there are so few straight lines in any episode. Like basically every line's a joke. So if if we go for any period of time without a joke, it's just like, oh, you know, wow. what, what's going on here? But you know, it's uh it's a good group of people. It's fun. We enjoy, you know, pitching together in the room. And uh it's also great because at late night, you're always at your computer typing. And when you go to the sitcom world, someone else does it. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> nice. So you just, you guys have conversations and there's, there's people yeah. taking down what and, you're and a writer's assistant, you know, oh. bangs it out. And then we kind of organize everything and give it to the bosses to read. And uh, like when we write our scripts, obviously we go off and do it on our own. But, sure. Uh, sure. but I had, I was working on this horrible show called Lopez Tonight and uh, I worked there for a season and the writers were expected to crank out so much material that would just go into a black hole just totally vanish that towards the end of the year I was really developing some carpal tunnel issues and I'd never had that happen before because you were just constantly on the computer just all day to long to expected to just churn out more and more nonsense and uh yeah, it was really uh, it was really putting me <laughs> in some pain. So sure. I'm really glad to have wound up in the half hour world. And I hear people in half hour and people in live action. I mean, live action's difficult because you're dealing with actors and other people's schedules and showing up and personalities, personalities, <laughs> and uh, dealing nowadays with people getting COVID on set and spreading it to everybody. So we're fortunate in that 
all our actors are at this point patched in via phone and doing all their voiceovers from different places. And, you know, if they get sick, it's fine. The, <laughs> the show can go on. We can just keep animating and do all that. So yeah. it, it, was re- it was particularly a good show to work on during the plague of the last two years. Sure. And you guys kept cranking out episodes during that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did uh, two seasons remotely and, uh, you know, we're back together now, now that um, it's abated somewhat. But yeah, we, we cranked out about 40 episodes in, in that time. We do about 20 episodes a season. Well, talk about, I mean, like the delayed gratification of something from concepting to writing it out to to air being 14 months. Like that's gotta, I mean, I guess you can't really be precious about any episode. You just kind of forget. Yeah. And you know, it was difficult for me at first as a writer because working late night pretty much exclusively up until that time, I, I started there nine years ago, but you would know what worked that night and you immediately got whatever rush. You knew what to do the next day, you know, and mm-hmm. what not to do. Whereas nowadays, like, you know, I just throw out a joke. And in a couple of weeks, it gets animated or it gets recorded. And it the first the first run is an animatic, which is a rough black and white version. And it's like, oh, okay, it worked. I feel I feel good. <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but that sort of endorphin rush that I think a lot of comedy people need all the time. You need You learn to temper it a bit when you're dealing with such a uh, with a timeline that stretched out sure. a bit more. Wow. And so is there a joke that you wrote for The Daily Show or from any of your shows that you remember that you're super proud of? Or are you not even that precious with your jokes? Uh, I mean, you just crank out so many. You know, it's funny, though. There's one. I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> but um, occasionally people try to <laughs> cancel Jon Stewart with a a joke that was that we wrote in 2004, I think. Might have even been 2002, but it was a joke about gender that tore the roof off the place then, but nowadays gets a, you know, again, forgive us all. It was 20 years ago. You know, we've all grown and gotten better. And I remember looking at it, I'm like, oh, I might have written that, you know, (laughs) because I seem to remember it was, I wasn't having a good day Mm -hmm. in the very end of it. And I'm just like, uh, they won't do this. I'll type it in and put it in. And then they did it. And the fact that, that it seems to be floating around on the internet. And honestly, you can go through a lot of, you know, Daily Show is a very progressive show. You can go through a lot of the stuff we did back then that is just cringeworthy now because it hasn't aged well. I, I think that's always a problem with comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it doesn't stick to John because, you know, it was one joke and it was a generation ago. And, um, you know... I, Everyone loves Johnny Carson. Look at some of the clips of the stuff Ooh, he used to do. It's wolf. really <laughs> some of it. Even for then, I, I've watched some older stuff, and I'm like, "Damn, Johnny!" Like, yeah. In between smoking under like the table. Like, wow, that was yeah. yeah. I mean, we were triumphant white guys who were untouchable. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there wasn't an internet to come after us. You what know, an we, honest us triumphant. You know. Back when us triumphant white guys roamed the earth. (laughs) (laughs) What a time for you guys. I bet it was great. (laughs) I mean, that's probably like, I have a lot of, you know, writers my age who are just like, why can't we say blah, blah, blah anymore? And why can't we say that? And I'm just like, we said it for years. You know, (laughs) we can find something else to say. You know, like a couple of years ago, I could still make hay with, you know, a fat joke or something. And and then it came up on Twitter that people were kind of swatting me down. I'm like, oh. 
okay, yeah, you're right. You know, you yeah, know? So, sure. I mean, there are all sorts of new parameters and stuff. And if you're a decent writer, you can work around them. Like if it's your only move up to the net, as it were. Wow, I made two sports you references. You did. I'm this. very impressed. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you might be in trouble, but <laughs> there, there, there are workarounds. And uh, But no, Quebec, it's hard for me to remember. There have just been so many sure. of them. Sure. And, uh and that's over the course of a 25-year career. That I don't mean to come across as like, I'm such a joke machine. It's hard for me to... You well, no, but, you, but, but that's a long time working in, in a space where you have to crank out 60 jokes a day, in theory, or you know, sometimes less than that, obviously. But Well, you know, the first joke I got on TV, honestly, I can look back, and it's a very, very strong joke. Colin Quinn did it on SNL, and this is like 1998. And it was about the uh, Gucci heiress who paid to have her husband knocked off. Sure. Um, ha- have her husband killed. House of Gucci addresses uh, this. Yeah, and that's yeah. Her, but this was actually when it happened. Okay. And she was sentenced to 15 years in prison, which most people feel is a tremendous price to pay for a Gucci knockoff. <laughs> and like I... It's such a but um yeah, That's a great joke. But went that's over a, like gangbusters. I bet. That's and, funny now. Yeah, and I, I was really, really thrilled to have that on. And uh, Colin Quinn really picked some favorite jokes of mine. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes they would die in front of the audience. I'd, I'd feel bad. But I think he, for me, I think he had really good taste and stuff he picked. I think he did it for like a season or two seasons when he hosts the Weekend Update. It wasn't know. a very long run. He was not the idea of a news anchor because he's sure. kind of a blustery Irish-American guy. Yeah. And I don't remember who. They might have might have been Tina, Tina Fey after, after him. Yeah. Maybe. But uh, but no, he was great and he was really good to me. And I remember those first couple of jokes when I was working in advertising. Like, oh, I got something on TV. Oh, that would feel so um, amazing. Yeah, I could actually. Res- there was another one about John Gotti Jr. being forced to wear a tracking bracelet. Many say it's the most tasteful piece of jewelry a Gotti's ever worn. You know, it was like, well, well, so that's weirdly two fashion jokes. I, I Those are great. There. I love it. So that's an interesting, I mean, I don't want to keep harping on it, but it's such an interesting era where you would literally, via fax, you would just send it to some number mm-hmm. and then somebody would pick it up and bring him, here's the pile of jokes yeah. that people have submitted. Yeah. So you would put your name on it. You put your name on it. Okay. Um, you would have to submit by like three o'clock on Friday. Okay. And I, when I worked in my advertising job where I didn't do anything, it was great because if you got a couple of jokes on the air, the writer's assistant then helped you out by sending you setups. You know, like into, like like the the straight lines. He would go through the newspaper and be like Gucci air sentenced to twenty five years, and then you would you would write your punchline to it. And so they didn't do that for everybody. I think once they kind of realized, you. oh, this person can can sell stuff, we'll help that person out. But uh, yeah, I think that fax number kind of went around like wildfire. Oh. I mean, I had. Alec at SNL, I had another guy named Ray James who was writing for Weekend Update, who was a stand-up comic and who I've worked with many times since then. I think he was occasionally taking my stuff and putting it on the top of the pile as well. Bless. So, I mean, it's good to have somebody on the inside. Yeah. And, um, obvi- I mean, obviously people don't use fax machines anymore. Okay. But, um, you know, I think at one point they changed the number and then some of us got an email saying, hey, the new number is... Just in case you were curious. Yeah, because I, I think the the net had been cast so wide and comedians being people who are 
always trying to curry favor with other comedians. It's like, oh, I might have this number if you want to, you know. Hey, yeah. you're, 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 you you're did a topical funny. joke. You can yeah. give you this number. You can maybe put me up tonight and stuff like that. But but yeah, it was just um, just a fax machine and a couple of good words from people. And would you do that simultaneously after? So post advertising job and on to your first actual like staff writing job, would you still submit jokes like that to um, whomever? I, well, no, I was. I was working advertising. I worked in advertising up until I jumped over to The Daily Show. I took oh, wow. a pay cut to work on The I Daily Show. I bet you show. did. <laughs> that feels right. But I was faxing all the time from my job. Okay. And then, you know, he put in the good word with John. And then I, I got a call from Madeline Smithberg, who was one of the creators of The Daily Show. And the guy at the time who was a head writer named Chris Kresge. And they called me over to interview me. And John came in like halfway through the meeting. Like he had not quite taken over the show to the extent that he would within a year because I think Comedy Central kind of picked him up like a bit of a hired hand, sort of. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, it was called The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, but I think he was listed as a co-executive producer then when there were other people who were executive producers. And, uh, I mean, he leapfrogged over them eventually and and then was able... The head writer who was there, he was replaced... I mean, he didn't like it at all, and he left after a year, and then John was able to hire his guy, and then the rest so on and so okay. on. Yeah. Okay. So you're so get us up to today. You're a Family Guy now. Mm-hmm. You are. You have a couple projects that I know you can't really talk about, but you've got some things going on that you're you're constantly writing. You're constantly putting stuff out there. Yeah, I'm currently pitching a um, seven part historical miniseries, and it's so cool. And I know we can't. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. But it is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just about to go out and meet a lot of people about it, and I hope they take uh, it seriously. They'd be um, idiots not to buy it. They would be idiots yeah. not to. I'll say it. They'd I mean, even if it. they don't want me to write it, I've written it. I've written the pilot. You know, I'd be happy. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'd be happy to oversee it if you want to get. Like, you know. <laughs> well, you'd be willing to UPM a show or <laughs> yeah, EP yeah. it. But um, but, you know, it's. I wanted to do something different. You know, comedy has changed a bit, and people aren't terribly interested in buying new comedic ideas from fellas who's I I says white dudes. I'll say Yes, yeah. I I check off some demographic boxes that that, uh don't people don't necessarily want to get in bed with anymore (laughs) in terms of of creating work. And you know you know comedy is always a little skewed toward towards a younger audience. At least it is now. It's funny I I see I follow a Twitter feed that tells you what's coming up on Turner Classic Movies. And there's, it's funny, there's so many comedy movies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like, there's not one person in this under 40. Wow. You know, and like, you yeah. certainly would not see that anymore. If they want comedy with young people, written by young people. You know, and again, I've had a great run. I'd be happy to stay at Family Guy. As, I mean, I, I love it as long as I can. But I thought if I'm going to do some new stuff that... Maybe it'd be better to completely come out with something people don't expect from me. So sure. that's kind of my strategy right now. That sounds seems like it's worked out so far. Everything yeah. you you were facts and jokes, and now you're on Family Guy. So all it sounds like you're doing things correctly. <laughs> okay, well, folks, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're going to move on to the entrees after a quick break. Great. It's uh yeah. You're so prepared, Chris. Yeah, okay. well, I, I appreciate you sending me the questions. Yeah, actually, it helps. So. it helps. Most people are yeah don't want to fly blind. Okay, 
We are back, and now it is time for the entrees. Okay, Chris, now as a long-standing loyal fan of the podcast, you obviously already know how this works, but mm. I always explain it. Uh, this is the part where you tell all the nitty-gritty stories, but this is the part that the audience loves the most, so feel free to go into all the horrors because they really, the dessert is their least favorite part. That's where we're positive, so they love <laughs> this bit where you drag companies. So what was your first job ever where the government was like taking taxes out of your salary? So people have said babysitting, things like that, which is fine. But do you have like, were you, I don't know, a line cook or a this or a that as your first job ever? Well, I was a teenager. I think they might've taken some taxes, but not, um, certainly not what a grown up uh, pays, but I was 16 years old. This is 1983. Um, I had my working papers, which, you know, meant I could drive on my permit to go to my job. But I uh, worked at a supermarket in New Paltz, New York, near, near where I grew up called a Great American. Oh boy. And uh, my father worked in supermarkets all his life. He was a butcher. And oh. um, he was always very much, uh, that was not going to be the, the, the life for me. But, you know, we, uh, my father being a butcher, uh, I had to kind of go out there and earn money. <laughs> and so, it, I mean, it was horrible. It was, it was one of those grocery stores where you had to wear a little bow tie, oh. uh, a white oh. shirt with brown polyester pants and a brown apron. Oh, no, no. And I never realized how dirty and backbreaking supermarket work was. Ooh. You know, I mean, my, my dad was a butcher, which certainly was dirty and back, backbreaking. But I kind of thought, oh, I'm the guy wearing the bow tie. It won't be bad. But it was, you know, it, my first day, my manager, Don, whose name I remember still, I don't remember anyone else there, he had me up on a ladder in the store, like hanging signs about specials. But I was really up 17, 18 feet, you know, the high high ceilings of a, a rural super, supermarket, hanging these signs, you know, kind of pushing up. I'm I'm not good on ladders. Like I can be a thousand feet up. If I'm 10 feet up, I'm, I'm, I'm not good. And just hanging these signs. I was covered in sweat, absolutely terrified. I had to go out and collect the carts and move them in from the parking lot. And it's weird in California. And I had to get used to this. When I moved out here, people return their carts in upstate New York. Nobody returns their carts. You just leave them by wherever their car (laughs) was. You just leave them by wherever your car, your car is. You, you do the favor of putting the cart in such a way that it doesn't roll and hit someone else's car. What heroes. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you don't put it back. But, but that was just tradition where I grew up. You never returned a cart. So I'd have to go through this parking lot and grab the carts. And this was the era before they had those little beeping machines that, that pushed your oh, carts. Sure. Yeah. So it, that was very, very difficult. And I got my first taste of class warfare because Ooh. I had this great friend named Danny he was my age, but he was a year behind me because he'd, he'd flunked out a year. And <laughs> <No> um, <laughs> I was there working at the store in my bow tie and stuff. And Danny came in with some other kids I didn't know that well. And they decided to victimize me a bit because I was working. And Danny kind of joined in, Ooh. like just giving me a hard time. And, and that was your homeboy? You guys were friends? Yeah. We, Ooh. I never spoke to him after that. I bet. <laughs> what a disloyal asshole. Yeah. I wouldn't have either. But I think it was, you know, kind of a weak-willed kid. He was maybe with some popular kids that he wasn't normally with. Yeah. That's when it occurred that's when it finally when I finally arrived at the thought like, oh, some kids aren't gonna have to work. Hello. And some of us <laughs> are gonna have to work. And uh that was the beginning of my anger at the world. <laughs> kind of. I was always like, hey, we're all in this together. We're all goofy. Everybody works a job. But no, there was half of New Paltz that didn't work a job. They were uh, all 
the kids who are the descendants of the original French Huguenot founders, they went to the Dutch Reformed Church. I was, you know, we went to the Catholic Church, uh, the Irish and Italian people went. Yeah, it was a big eye-opener in that mm. some people aren't going to have to work. And you, Chris Regan, are. you're going to have to work. <laughs> was it, so it was a wealthy town where you lived, is what I'm getting. It is. It's kind of half and half because... Okay. There's a lot of apple farming there. Sure. It's kind of a blue area and sort of a red area of Got state. It. But there's a college there, so it attracted a lot of academics, uh, you know, and kind of smart people. But across the river, an IBM was there. And IBM in the 60s, it's funny, a friend of mine from Facebook posted this IBM kind of propaganda film aimed at people in New York to move upstate, you know, and, and get a real job. And it was really a good quality of living for people in the post-war era. Uh, so there were some people whose parents were kind of rich because they worked at IBM. And then I think in the mid-90s, IBM totally cratered. And I think they had someone on, on staff to keep people from suiciding. Like it was something where people had worked there 30, 40 years. Oh, my God. And they were suddenly out of jobs. But I was I, that town was in my rear view at that point. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of, you know, we lived a little out in the sticks. I didn't live in the town proper. So you hop on a bus and you get to school. And... I certainly wasn't like farmer laborer poor, but I was different from the other folks. And I also began to realize that my folks were a little different because my, uh, my folks um, emigrated here. And I think, you know, they had kind of accents and they were a little different. And I was very much in sort of homogenous upstate New York. And I, that's when, between that and being taunted by rich kids while wearing a bow tie, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not, things are going to be a little different for me, like, like throughout my life. And I think mm. I've been kind of sheltered to that fact. So it was an important job. I didn't work there that long mm. um, because I got a job pumping gas. Well, <laughs> shit. Now, wait, before we go to pumping gas. So was that the same supermarket that your dad was a butcher at? Like no. Goes, oh, no, it was not. No, no. My, my father worked at the, uh, the ShopRite chain, which was a different chain. ShopRite's still around. Great American is gone. But my, yeah, my dad worked. My dad never worked in our town. He was always stuck working at a different store like 40 minutes away. It's also such an Irish family thing. And I can only say this because my family is Irish. It's that thing of like, oh, no, I could hook you up with this thing. But like, no, you can get your own fucking job. <laughs> like, no, I will not call the boss for you. Good luck. Yeah, no, no, no. I was basically, when I was old enough to work, it was... Bye-bye. Go yeah, to work. Yep. Yeah, here. My father, when I got out of college, he and I were going to go on a little trip together to uh, we were driving up to Montreal from upstate New York. And my, my mother had just passed away. And I was planning on, like, spending a couple of weeks at home with him. And I remember him just tossing the want ads in my hand from the New York Times. I'm like, oh, okay, nope, nope. I'm still, uh, okay. I'm still expected to work always. Got <laughs> it's, it. It's Got never going to be a down moment. <laughs> know my role. <laughs> um, do you guys have a big family? Are there a lot of siblings, or is it just you? No, no, it's, uh, uh, it's just me and my brother. We had, a, uh, we had a sister. She passed away a couple of years ago. But oh, uh, my brother is nine years older. My sister was eight years older. And then there was me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, my parents have since passed away. I have a couple of cousins. Some of them don't speak to me anymore because of Trump, I believe. God, such an Irish family <laughs> thing. Why are we all the same? We well, are all the well, same. Well, they're appalling because their mother emigrated here, like my father, and they're like all anti-immigrant all of a sudden. Cool. So. Well, Trump married an immigrant, but don't get me started. Yeah, yeah. And I have some great cousins who I'm very, very fond of. And uh, I have an aunt left. 
<laughs> and, uh, but but yeah, not a lot of work to do uh, when it comes to sending Christmas cards. Well, so you know, what's less labor-intensive <laughs> holidays. Okay, so your next job was pumping gas. Mm-hmm. So the next question is, how many customer service jobs have you had? So do you? So we start at the grocery store, then we go pumping gas. What's mm-hmm. after pumping gas? Uh, Caldors, which was a, a chain on, on the East Coast. It was kind of a fancier Kmart. Ooh. I worked. Uh, I worked in the sporting goods section, which meant I kicked a lot of questions down the line. <laughs> um, but that was that was at Newburgh Mall in upstate New York, which apparently was just sold to the bank for a dollar. Shut up. Um, yeah, I mean the, the glory days of '80s malls. I mean, I, they I, are I, over. I, I was there for it, but but yeah, yeah the, it's mostly abandoned now. But then I went to the CVS in the same mall because they were offering me more hours. Okay. Caldors just keep me on weekends, and then uh, Pizza Hut. Then there was college, uh, dishwasher in college, projectionist in college, uh, summers in between college, uh, mowing lawns at an Air National Guard base <laughs> and getting sprayed with a defoliant called Green Death accidentally. Um, <laughs> I can't take notes fast enough. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, another job in college was a night job at Letterly Laboratories in Pearl River, New York. Uh, they made Centrum. My sister was an engineer there, so she got me this night job, which oh. paid which paid nine eighty one an hour. So which, that wasn't very Irish of her. She was very American at that point, where offering oh. you a hookup at a job. Yeah, that was nice of her. Okay, <laughs> but that paid nine eighty. I swept and mopped the Swift Pack packing room number four, Ooh. and uh, it was a big assembly line room where they pack Centrum. And before I started, because I would work from like ten thirty at night until six thirty in the morning, and uh, I would have to count every Centrum that had fallen off the line. What is that? Is Centrum the vitamin? Is Wait, that oh, do they not have It used to be a one-a-day vitamin. Right, okay, I think yeah. I've seen it. The yeah. green top. There's, uh, I think I've, I've seen it. They used to be a purple pill. Purple pill. I remember okay. if you wet them, they became crayons. <laughs> I, I used to find out a lot of great things at four in the morning at my job. <laughs> That's terrifying. Um, we were ingesting crayons. That's terrifying. <laughs> but I would have to count every pill that had fallen off the line Ugh. and put them in baggies and Ugh. put them in this. And then I got to sweep and mop this one enormous room all by myself. Yeah, I think that was, then I went, then I graduated college and I started working like low level PA jobs and okay. stuff like that. But, but yeah, that, I think the last, honest to goodness, cust- I mean, custodian isn't really, but, but I'd say, you know, the lawnmower projectionist dishwasher stuff like that. the dishwasher thing at college, I couldn't hack even though I was in the back room because that was again, like, uh, some students don't have to do this. Oh, I get that. But then I became a projectionist, which meant I was in a little booth working, so no one had to see me. Okay, I'm going backwards. Okay. Okay, so pumping gas. We've had one other guest on the podcast who explained this, but I think I'd rather have you explain it too, because it's a very, very old school East Coast thing, which I think now only exists in New Jersey by law. Mm -hmm. So could you explain, like, when people hear pumping gas, they think, oh, he means checking people out at the Oh, no, no, no. And in upstate New York, in New Jersey, they're all full service. You're not allowed to pump your own gas. In upstate New York, the gas station I worked in, we had self-serve and full service. And when there was someone pulled up to a full service pump, I would have to leave my little office and put the gas in the car 
and then get the money from them. Or if they had a credit card, this is again, 1983, 84, I would then have to go in and run the credit card and give them the carbon. It was a very, yeah, it was a very complicated process. And time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Like no one was in and out of there very quick. Yeah. I, I was always happy when someone would pull up to the, to the self-serve, but. So every gas station had full service when you were growing up. So yeah, this- and self-serve and full serve, but there was never a self-serve only gas station growing up. Okay. So that was unique to New Jersey still is. Okay. So then you, so you would pump gas. Then Caldors was fancy Kmart. Shout out to Maral, who's the Sirius XM producer of this podcast. She worked at Kmart. She's the only other guest I've had on that has worked at a Kmart. So I know this wasn't exactly Kmart. So what was it that you did at Caldors? You said sporting. I was, I had a job on Saturday and Sunday in the sporting goods section. Sporting goods. Okay. So what did you do? I basically kind of, you know, made sure the shelves were stocked answered people's questions, but I was the kind of, per- you know, I went to a Sears a couple of years ago before they cratered and, um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but, but, but cause I, I had a house in upstate New York and, um, I used to go to on weekends, uh, big flex, Chris, big flex, go ahead <laughs> with my ex-wife. Let's, let's take away that, that, that old flex. <laughs> but I remember going to a Walmart for the first time, uh, in 2006 or 2007 and no one there knew anything about any, like no one had a specialty or a section. And then I went to the nearby Sears. I wanted to buy a bike. The guy in the sporting goods section at Sears knew how to put the bike together, knew this and the other thing. And Caldor's was the same thing. When you worked in a a department there, be it appliances, something like that, you had all the skills of a person working in kind of a mom and pop shop. Whereas what I've gathered from Walmart is, they're basically keeping people warm so they can collect their food stamps, you know? Uh, yeah. They're so, not paying them enough. So yeah. it's like, yeah, and, why would the, you train them? But yeah, they're not teaching anyone anything nope, there. They're sure not. Um, but yeah, in the sporting, yeah, I had to wear a tie and a name tag and, you know, a pair of khakis and, you know, I just had to price things with the price gun and make sure everything was faced properly on the shelf, you know, God. brought to the front and dusted. And there, that was most of the time. The, that was a big chunk of working at a CVS. But facing okay. all the aisles. Wait, wait, wait! Don't okay. jump ahead! Don't jump ahead! We're gonna get there. Okay. So at the at Fancy Kmart, you work at the at the in the sporting goods. What was the dumbest thing you were asked? Do you remember or some question you would get all the time? I was the dumbest thing in the department because <laughs> you're not a sports guy. I'm not a sports guy. <laughs> okay. They had that opening, and I like I could tell you what a soccer ball was and a basketball, <laughs> but when anyone really got you know down to a nitty gritty question, I'd be like, "This sounds like a question for Marcus." <laughs> You know, and Marcus, where yeah. are you, Marcus? <laughs> and Marcus was kind of the manager of a couple of departments there. Uh, I okay. probably, it was only three weeks before I was offered more hours at the other end of the mall. I probably would have been fired just because I think I may have plumed up some of my knowledge about sporting goods before I got the job there. Sure. Um, because the gas station went out of business, so I needed something <laughs> You're else. like, I got to lie my way into somewhere because yeah. no Irish people are going to help me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you worked there Saturdays and Sundays. What may, So you said CVS was willing to offer you more hours mm-hmm. was the attraction there. Yeah. So there was no, you didn't care that it was a pharmacy, that you had no emotional vested interest no. in this. It I mean, was, everything was paying what the minimum wage was then three thirty five an hour. Fuck me. Yeah. How did you? What could you? you do, that's what we make it as servers, but we at least have tips. Like, how would you? Well, I mean, you weren't born in World War Two. Like, you couldn't live on that. But when I worked at the gas station, I think gas was ninety seven cents a gallon then, and sure. that was considered kind of high. I mean, no, no, no it, it was inexcusable. Like, um, and what was even more frustrating was I remember in our break room at CVS. 
they had the postings of, of the rates of, of, of minimum wage. And through the Carter administration, it had gone up every year. When Reagan took over, Pew. nope. No, no, no increase at all. No, it was like, because this was 1984-85, the minimum hit like 335 in like 1981, and it was frozen then. Jeez. And it stayed that way a, a good long time. And yeah, yeah, you weren't making tips at CVS or at Caldor. No, I imagine <laughs> not. Were you, so you, it was literally just more hours. Mm-hmm. That was it. Okay, so what did you do at CVS besides having to arrange the shelves? Which just, you're kind of an all-purpose clerk there. You work the register. On Sundays, we would get there early to do a hardcore facing of it, which was meant I would get there at like 9.30. We open at noon. Malls used to open at noon and would close at 5 on Sundays. How interesting. Yeah, I mean, there used to be some remnant of blue laws on, but, uh. but, but Sunday was a shorter day. Um, you also made time and a half occasionally on a Sunday. Hell yeah. Yeah, which I, I think the whole concept of time and a half is gone now. But um, mm. that was... Name tag, skinny leather tie. That you love a job with a good tie. Yeah, okay, yeah. skinny leather tie. Okay. Um, not a huge store. We didn't have a pharmacy. It was a CVS out of pharmacy, so there was no pharmacist there. Wait, so what, what, did the, what was CVS before it was a pharmacy? Oh, that's why they changed the name CVS Pharmacy. Yeah. Because it literally was just, I don't know what CVS stands for, but I'm going to look it up. Uh, consumer value stores. You knew. Yep. I love it. I didn't even have to look that up. Wait, so it was meant to be selling like knickknacks and snacks and And it had, it had drugs and, oh, uh, okay. you know, aspirin. It had over-the-counter stuff. Oh, okay. And it had a magazine section and a bingo section and... I'm sorry? Uh, I thought I heard you say bingo section. There was a bingo section there. What does that mean? That that's where you buy there's a section it was by pipes and across from condoms weirdly enough <laughs> you're but, having a crazy friday <laughs> getting some pipes some condoms and some bingo <laughs> now remember there used to be and this is 1984 there used to be a, a good a good yard dedicated to pipes and pipe supplies and captain jack tobacco and stuff like that oh pipes smoking oh, pipes. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah yeah i'm thinking metal pipes oh to no like no, no people no, i'm like what no no thoughtfully sucking on a pipe kind huh. of stuff my dad was a pipe smoker so i really get it. yeah oh yeah um and then next to it was a bingo section where it sold chips and bingo cards and dabbers where you dab ink on oh yeah that's a very for cards. serious bingo players that's a big deal yeah and i think upstate being a fairly sizable Catholic community. Like bingo was kind of a big thing. Yeah. But yeah, we had greeting cards. We had magazines. We had, um, uh, I mean, it was really just kind of general merchandise, but we just didn't have a pharmacy in the back. So did you work there when they added the pharmacy? No, no. I mean, some CVSs then did have a pharmacy, but this one didn't. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. It's sort of like, a Target with a supermarket versus a got Target without, um, one. W- without one. Yep, got it. Okay. That was, I was behind the register. I was facing, but yeah, you get in Sunday morning. I'd put on Casey Kasem, American Top 40. Oh, may he rest. And then I would walk around and dust. And we had two feather dusters. Both of them were pink. Of course. <laughs> just to shame you further. <laughs> so just hit everything, pull everything to the front of the shelf, dust, pull everything to the front of the shelf, and just ideally in two and a half hours, get up and down all eight aisles or whatever. And you, you could do it because there were some sections which weren't 
really touched much. Sure. <laughs> like, I know he had an ethnic hair section, okay. which in kind of gathered some dust yeah, in but... upstate New York. <laughs> and, uh, but the condom section flew off the shelves oh, because those fake Catholics were actually using prophylactics. I mean, I was so, I was always so embarrassed by, by, by that section. You? Yeah. Bless your yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah that's was, a very Catholic thing I would have been too. Yeah, I wasn't quite there in my life. Um, but, like, like, but like our magazine rack was handled by an outside magazine vendor and they would come in once a week and they would kind of do everything. Mm. Like if we saw something completely messed up, mm-hmm. like I remember all the hair metal kids would come in whenever Cream Magazine or Hit Parader came out and they would like all go there and just thumb through to see pictures of um, a Quiet Riot and Aww. Judas Priest and stuff like that. Then they'd put them always put in them the back. wrong place. Yeah, and they're like, we're not buying these. We're just looking at new pictures. And we sold cigarettes behind the counter. We sold adult magazines behind the counter, which was Playboy and Penthouse. Were you so mortified? If you couldn't stand by condoms, there's no way you're handing some dude a penthouse. Oh, I was okay with grabbing one of them and (laughs) thumbing through them. I remember um, when the Vanessa Williams penthouse came out. Oh, I didn't know she was in penthouse. Good for she, her. It was a bit because she was uh, she became Miss America, and then some old nude pictures came out. Oh, and they released um, the penthouse where it was a picture of her on the cover with George Burns. So, you okay. know, gentlemen, start your boners. <laughs> and um, but I remember we had an African American clerk named Denine who bought every copy we got. Oh. Bless because, her. Because she didn't want people Vanessa, seeing yeah. the first ever Black Bless Miss America. Her. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she was making three thirty five an hour, too. Oh, that actually that makes was, me want to cry. Yeah. I, I think she probably, you know, uh, that was at least half a day's uh, wages for her. For but, her. yeah, she got in there early. She's like, can I buy these? I'm like, yeah. So she bought them all and then just took them out to her car and like tossed them in the trunk. Bless her. But people were coming in like, "Hey, do you have the uh, you got the Vanessa Williams back there?" I'm like, no, sorry, <laughs> sure buddy. don't. Denine took we're, care of it. Sorry, we're, we're all sold out. And uh, that was a tough job because that was, in terms of customer service, that was really my first experience with several hours a day dealing with the general public behind a cash register. And that sucked. <laughs> I. That's when I really, it was like when I was a grocery store clerk, it was okay. When I was a gas station guy, you know, the, the, that was great too. Wait, um, why was this different then? Because I was trapped behind a counter oh. and you'd be ringing somebody up and then some old lady would come in and, you know, wonder where the peds are or like, like some like old lady sock. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, just, and that was also when I realized like, oh, if you're wearing a name tag... Some people will use your name. Yeah, yeah. And will just <laughs> treat you really badly. But, you know, uh-huh. you would have a big long line. And, you know, sometimes you'd ring the bell to get someone from the back to come up. And oftentimes they wouldn't hear it. And uh, I mean, it, was, it was just tough. And people thought nothing. And, you know, I also had to monitor. We we're supposed to monitor shoplifters, which I absolutely did not do. Of course not. <laughs> what are you going to get beaten up? Yeah. By, like, no. And then I would, at age 17 or something have to tell people my age, not sorry, I can't buy you cigarettes. And then like some of the hair metal kids would threaten to beat me up after work. And, and you're like, stuff. I actually believe you and I hate this job. Please stop. I mean, oftentimes I would sell them, but if a manager saw me, I would really get, get chewed out because I, I didn't care. You like, didn't, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're I mean it's still illegal, but you're like, whatever. Yeah, I mean, we're selling a ton of these back here all the time. Well, shout out to Carl Tart, another former guest on the podcast. He mentioned he worked at a Rite Aid and this was in LA and he said girls, like the influencer girls would come in and just rob the place of makeup. And he was like, we knew exactly what they were 
were doing. And his manager had said to him, you have to stop them. But technically speaking, it's not theft until they leave the property. So they can have it in their bags. And until they cross the threshold of the door, Ugh. it's legally not theft until then. And he said to his manager, he's like, what do you want me to run after them? And the manager was like, yeah. And he goes, I'm not paid enough to yeah. literally run after these people. I'm not doing that. And I remember when we started there, I had to sit through a slide presentation about consumer value stores. And you know, I think they were based in Rhode Island at the time. I'm sure they've been bought several times. Sure. They might not, it might even be a KFC thing. Like there's no more consumer value stores. But their whole thing was, you know, for every item that's stolen, we need to sell another, another 26 to make that profit back. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And also shut sir. up. Like yeah. that's a lie and please stop. Okay, well folks, okay, pause your stories because so where we are up to is the hell that is CVS and I'm sure you have more to talk about with that. So folks, Chris is delightful and he totally understands the assignment. So we are going to wrap this part up. This is going to be the end of part one. So folks, you're going to listen next week to hear the answers to the rest of his stories. He's got more gnarly stories to tell us. But Chris, before we wrap, how can people get in touch with you? Do you want people to, your Twitter is fucking fire. So I don't know if you want people to find you on there. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I would love to be followed on Twitter. Okay. How, and, how can they, what is your handle? How do they get, and, and is there another, are you on other social platforms that you want people to find you on or would you prefer to keep it just to Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Okay. If you want to look at pictures of my dog. Or, oh, you do y'all. <laughs> you do. Where is she? She's sleeping Where somewhere she? in the house. Oh, she's, I wonder, but yeah, um, on, on Twitter, I'm Chris, at Chris R. Regan. There's an extra, are in there because my middle name is Ronald, oh. um, which is a long story. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's Chris R. Regan, R-E-G-A-N. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Yeah, you and, are. You're um, very funny on Twitter. I, I enjoy Twitter. And uh, if you'd like to hear some of my jokes that... Don't no, make it to air. <laughs> that don't make it to air or nobody buys. <laughs> but by okay. all means, uh, uh, please give me a follow. Okay. Well, folks, we're going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service from Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the show wherever you listen, which right now is on SiriusXM. Shout out to them. Thank you for having us on on channel 771. And it will help us reach more people that need to be schooled in the art of being kind. And will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. If you want to get in touch with us here at Service from Hell directly, send us your receipts to servicefromhellpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, if you can't afford to tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. Okay, folks, that's going to wrap it up for part one. Join us next week back with Chris Regan for part two.